G'day Inverse community, I'm Jared McKenna and I can't tell you how excited I am about my co-host Dr Drew Hart's new book, Who Will Be a Witness? Igniting Activism for God's Justice, Love and Deliverance. To quote that towering 20th century figure of God's justice, love and deliverance, Abraham Joshua Heschel, there are no final proofs for the existence of God. There are only witnesses. For Heschel, much like the Hebrew prophets and that nonviolent Messiah of justice named Jesus, faith is not merely to be believed, faith is to be embodied. Drew Hart is fast becoming a go-to voice for articulating a practical and prophetic embodied faith in our time. In these additional episodes, alongside our regular interviews, I think you'll hear why. Over the next coming weeks, we will interview friends and co-workers in what John Lewis called Good Trouble to discuss chapter by chapter Doc Drew's new book. These conversations were recorded in community with friends from around the world as part of Inverse's ongoing work to create formation experiences that deepen our witness to God's justice, love and deliverance. So grace and peace to you. Enjoy this conversation on this chapter in Drew's new book. So I'm really excited to uh, welcome our guest for today. Um, it is Pastor Daniel Hill. He is the pastor of River City Church in Chicago. Um, this is a church that really emphasizes spiritual renewal, social and economic justice, and they're really seeking to alleviate poverty in their neighborhood. Um, Daniel Hill is the author of two different books. His first book was Whites Awake. And then more recently, um, had a, a book birthday along with me, um, and his new book is called White Lies, Nine Ways to Expose and Resist the Racial Systems that Divide Us. Um, and so I'm just so grateful, uh, Daniel, that you could join us today. Welcome into the Inverse Podcast community, and thanks for joining in conversation with us today. Thank you, Dr. Drew. You know how honored I am to be here. Oh, thank you. Uh, before we jump into my context, contact uh, text. Um, can you just say, can you offer a kind of elevator speech of what this new book, White Lies, is about? Um, yeah, sure. I, I'm mostly outside of my day job of pastoring. I'm mostly in white evangelical spaces that are struggling to kind of uh, wrestle against white supremacy. And so um, a lot of white evangelical spaces have been sinfully conditioned to see the problems of race as a social problem or as a political problem or even a liberal agenda if you're on kind of more of the right side of things and to the right. So just trying to really emphasize that at the core of white supremacy, though, it's of course so deadly on every social and economic level that at its heart, it's really a spiritual principality that is built on lies around human value, um, the elevation of white life and the diminishment of black life. So it's really a very simple idea at the end of the day that if you're a Christian, if you follow Jesus, you have to hate white supremacy. And if you don't, something's wrong. And if you're not joining Jesus to confront and uproot it, there's a serious spiritual disconnect somewhere. So that's kind of the heart of the book. Thank you. Thank you. And I've got my copy. I haven't read it yet, um, but I think some of the folks can see it's actually right beside my book right now, kind of back there. <laughs> not that everyone can hear Visually, they can't, um, those listening can't see it, but this is uh, his new book and I'm really excited about it. Um, and Daniel, one of the really cool things in connection is that I've actually preached at Daniel Hill's church. 
um, had the opportunity when I threw out a quick invitation to a few folks when I was going to be in Chicago and he jumped first um, in line to invite me to come and preach. And so I've been able to actually be a part of that community and share there. And I'm not sure, I can't even remember exactly what I preached, but I think I might've done some stuff that had related to this chapter. Is that right? I don't know if, that, uh, or if it was something yeah. else. Yeah, you, you 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 bounced around a little. We actually did a whole, that was my favorite sermon the last five years. I told you that. And you started with um, Colossians 1, Jesus being the image of the invisible God, which we actually did an entire series. I don't know if I told you that. The next 12 weeks, we followed in the wake of your sermon and kind of kept building on. Because I think you talked about how the Me Too movement and Black Lives Matter are shining kind of a light on just all the shortcomings of the church. Um, and you really emphasized the shortcoming of the church, but then reminded us that the church is just because that shortcomings of the church, Jesus is still the answer. And so, um, talk about, yeah, anyway, I'm giving the whole recap of it. That's not what we're doing it for, no, but it was a very that's powerful right, that's right. Yeah, I still remember the whole thing. Awesome, awesome. Um, so in chapter five, you know, a lot of it is really concerned about how we organize ourselves as the church, as Christian communities, um, and how we need to um, pursue God's justice and God's reign literally in the community itself. And so I'm yeah. really interested in like, your own journey as a white pastor, um, trying to embody and live that out. Um, like what, what has that journey looked like for you as you guys have kind of pursued together, um, living into this kind of community? Yeah. You're asking me more questions about me than I expected. I want to talk about your book. So, <laughs> so, so what, which part of that are you asking me to speak into? Um, uh, just I'm your not, journey as it relates but... to just this process of, of transforming and restructuring a community's life together. Yeah. What, what, what has that meant for you? What was that journey kind of looking like for you? Uh, super disorienting, to be honest. You know, I mean, I think my journey is probably symbolic of a lot of white folks' journey where, um, you know, I, I wasn't even aware of such a thing as white culture. I wasn't aware of white norms. I wasn't aware of how dominant the white way of things doing things was. So even when I began to realize that, yeah, yeah, how do you even begin, you know, the overused analogy, but it's like the fish trying to describe the water it lives in. Right. right. I remember when I used that early on in river city, somebody said, that's an interesting metaphor too, because actually if you take a fish out of a water, it feels like it's, it's actually feels like it's going to die. Right. It actually will die. Right. And I think sometimes for white folks, that's what this feels like to like not do church or everything. Like we know how to do it it feels like we're dying, you know? Um, and so, um, yeah, I, I'd say there's a pretty, even four or five years in my racial awakening journey, which preceded me starting the shirt, there was, sort of a, I'd say a sharp learning curve of three or five years where I couldn't even detect what was the white way of doing things and what wasn't. And so it was just constant conversation with fellow leaders and congregants trying to understand the myriad of blind spots that I had as I was trying to be part of the leadership. So beautiful, transformative, but super disorienting and painful as well, I would say. Yeah, I mean, I think that I I imagine, and this is my impression, is that you've been on quite your own journey. I mean, that that, that you've kind of been learning and growing. Mm-hmm. And I mean, where you began is certainly not where you are now, right? Um, that it's really been a process. And I imagine also that would be the case for River City yeah, itself. Even this year, even this year, the like, the, the, when, when the George Floyd got murdered, kind of culminating that run of things we had, I mean, I, we've, we've been at this, I've been at the church for 18 years now. So this isn't the first, you know, obviously national police brutality we've seen, but our black community got hit way harder this time around than in anything we've ever experienced before. So even just this year, I'm so disoriented <laughs> trying to like walk with our church of kind of saying like what the most common frame we're hearing in the black community is like, things have to change. We have to do things differently than we've done in the past. And it's like, 
I agree. Right. But like, once again, I'm like, kind of like wide open again, going like, and I have no idea what that looks like. Right. So kind of on this like sharp learning curve of listening to people and kind of seeing God's direction through the context of community. So yeah, it doesn't end. It doesn't ever end. So w- one of the th- things that I frame in this book and I'm, um, thinking about when I give the analogy of me on the table, right. And everyone's sitting around it. Um, and I kind of use it as a playful way to kind of think about the difference between, um, especially white men in particular that frame that experience as being, um, marginalization, um, but instead, you know, really the need to reframe, you know, what's actually happening as decentralization and that those things are not the same thing, right? Marginalization and decentralization are not the same thing. Mm-hmm. And I'm curious about like, I mean, I don't know. And I'm asking you, you're the token white guy for, for the moment, but like um, as people are struggling, you know, white men are struggling through shifts that are going on in our society, very real shifts that are going on in our society um, in a way in which, in some spaces, they're not, things are not revolving around them the way mm-hmm. that always things often had for so long, right? I'm curious, um, how have um, you grappled with your own whiteness and avoided that? And, and what, what, what do you think like is needed? To, or maybe do you have, have you been able to walk with white people to kind of work through that kind of shift that they're experiencing in their lives? Uh, yeah, I mean, that's obviously just a never ending kind of process for those who are white. Um, yeah, I, I love that idea of like decentralizing that being the same thing. Um, I think two things I would add, like building on that within the white folks in our community. For one, um, some of the language that we're getting sharper on as we go, for a lot of white folks, they kind of, they, they, take on this understanding of kind of racial reconciliation that whatever growth looks like for them, it's like something they have to do for other people, right? Like they have to be for the liberation and freedom of other people, but it's rarely understood like how most liberation is going to start with ourselves, right? That like we're in bondage to this thing and our bondage to white supremacy is much of what disables us from being able to participate in meaningful kinds of things. Um, so that's still kind of a foreign idea. Um, uh, so I think of like one of the first key white leaders that we had, and it was really disappointing how it ended. He, you know, I really thought he was going to make it. He didn't, you know, he ended up doing his own thing. Um, but when this came up with him, he said, um, I know, uh, don't worry. I know the rules when we're in the leadership circles with like our multi-ethnic, you know, kind of leadership circle. My job as a white guy is just to be quiet. Like it doesn't matter if I have an opinion or not. I just need to be quiet. And I remember just being so disheartened by that because like all he was really hearing <laughs> was that, um, I just need to like not talk like that's the answer for this. And so I started probing. I started saying, so do you actually feel like you understand this stuff and you're just not supposed to say anything? Like, is that your is that your starting point that you understand it? Because I know for myself, I'm not artificially being quiet. <laughs> like, I'm overwhelmed by the far reaching impact of white supremacy. And I don't know where to begin even. So when I'm in a circle like this, I'm not being quiet to be quiet. I'm being quiet because like I desperately need other people to help me. Um, and to me, that has, there's a couple of implications for one, like the success of the ministry we're going to have is dependent on that. Like, it's not me artificially being quiet to be quiet. It's me saying there are people who through their lived experience and their perspective on the world, they just see this so much more clearly than I do. And we have no chance if they're not bringing their full selves to the leadership table. Um, but what I said to him, the other thing is like, I think for those of us who are white, 
if we don't see our own liberation being tied to this, right? Like if it's, if what we see is like, I'm still just same old Daniel, I just need to be quiet when I'm in multi-ethnic circles. Like that misses the point. What I told him is like, we've been warped. We've been messed up by white supremacy. So this isn't being quiet. It's about saying like, for the, as long as I'm in control of this conversation, I'm never even going to see where my blind spots are, where the warping has happened, where the lies of white supremacy still live inside of me. So I need this, not so that we can say we're even quarters of each race. I need this because my own liberation is tied to this. So I get it. So this is just a long way of saying, um, I think most of us who are white see it almost sheerly as loss, right? Like, you know, I have to give up power. I have to be less quiet. I have to be less visible. Um, instead of seeing like how even our own, not that I want to be selfish about us, but our own survival is dependent on it. our own liberation is dependent on it because we're not going to see how deep this goes inside of us. If we're not in spaces like this, not leading. I'd be curious to hear like what, what out of the chapter were there particular, I use um, in some ways I throw out so many metaphors <laughs> and examples and stuff throughout this. Were, were there anything that kind of stuck out to you in this chapter that kind of provoked your thinking? Yes. I feel bad that I didn't get here sooner because I'm sure I'm repeating some of the things. This is right in the middle of kid bedtime. So I got here as quick as I could. Sorry. But um, uh, yes, if I just highlight a couple of these, um, in the, I have it on Kindle, so I don't know if my pages are right, but right when you first open up the Acts 6 uh, and you call it overlookers and the overlooked, um, you've got a line. You say the book of Acts describes a community where God's reign was the new organizing principle for their lives, despite Jesus' return not having happened yet. It was a, a contagious community that was growing and expanding quickly. And uh, I just, I just love, like, to me, that's just such a cool vision statement for how church should work, um, as well as, I can't remember what chapter that is where you talk about, um, you use the language of deliverance instead of liberation or some of the other words, and you give your, um, you give your kind of rationale for that. But I've already started using some of your concepts at River City. Um, so the deliverance I've been using a lot, and then this idea where God's reign is the new organizing principle. Uh, th that's just such a, that's just such a sharp way to describe Jesus and the kingdom. So just, I, I just thought, um, that was really fantastic. Um, and the next part, th there's so much I love in this about when, when you go, um, you talk about Barnabas. And then after that, um, I felt like you were describing my own church. You said the faith described by this community is robust, but the community was also fragile. It was fragile because they were joined together only by the space of belonging made for them through Jesus. And I just think that, that that just gets to, I don't know, that just feels like so real life. Like we're in these multi-ethnic, economically diverse spaces. There's like such a vitality of faith, um, a dynamicism that's there, but they also just feel so fragile. <laughs> like, I feel like that in my church all the time, like that, that combination of dynamic faith, but just like utter fragileness. Um, and I just appreciated you being able to um, kind of name that. I, th I thought one of the things that I thought was really cool what you did in, ch um, in your exposition of, of Acts chapter six, um, rightfully so, you're talking about kind of the shortcomings and the way that they um, respond to that. But I also like how you say um, uh, Acts describes an organized system in place that was designed to take care of widows in their midst. And then you talk about how anyone who's read their Bible knows widows are among the sacred, the, the sacred list of commonly referred to people that we are to make it to, to care for. And I think it's cool the way that you honored, like, so this was actually in their DNA from the very beginning, that the needs of widows were treated as sacred. Sacred, They had a system intentionally designed to meet these needs. Um, 
I, I think that's helpful too. Like they didn't even, they understood that that had to be in place from the way they'd come to know Jesus, which can, at least in the world I'm in the white evangelical world, that's not an assumption of most evangelical spaces right. that we, right. that, that that should even be like, it's not like we're already doing it and need to improve or need to uh, address gaps. Like we don't even have a theology that embraces that. Right. So, um, um, so it's just, a, it was cool the way you highlighted that, like, at a theological level, even though it was still very imperfect in the way it was being made manifest and there was growing pains that were going to come with the evolution of, of kind of this community, the, the fact that, 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 that they, they understood as a holy vocation, I love that phrase that she used, the fact that they understood this as a holy vocation, um, I think is really meaningful. And then in the next page, you jump and you say the systems and structures in the church dedicated them for justice themselves were not just. And uh, that, that, boy, that's such a hard hitting line. That is just, I think that's just like each one of these represent like different. And I'm just talking about from the white experience. I'm not trying to represent others here, but like, I think in white spaces, you just see this, like there's the apathy and indifference, then there's starting to do it. And then you get to this where, you know, I see this in churches all the time where there actually is well-meaning efforts to address unjust circumstances, but then the system itself <laughs> perpetuates that same injustice. Right. And it's just a really, hard but important kind of conversation to continue to have. And I don't want, I don't know if you can have it without exactly what you're highlighting here, where there's these conversations across power differentials, across, you know, who's, who's overlooked and who's not, uh, but just that, that notion of the systems and structures in the church dedicated for justice were themselves, not just. Um, yeah. And you end that paragraph by saying it was inevitable that this fragile community would have to confront the realities of identity, belonging, and power, and to ultimately examine who became the overlooked, forgotten, and marginalized in the community. And I just like I had like an amen moment. He said, "Because I feel I don't think a church ever outgrows that, right? Like even mm-hmm. as you restructure it and it starts to work for a minute, the inevitability is always there again, right? Because we are we're fragile. Um, we're all, like even in a monocultural setting, we're somewhat fragile. Right? But when you're bringing all the different groups together in those intense power dynamics." Um, and the realities of identity, belonging, and power, um, it's just going to, it's going to continue to happen, right? Where there's going to be those who are overlooked, forgotten, marginalized, even treated unjustly. So I thought that was very powerful too. Um, I like, I, I have so many things. I'll just say a couple more. Uh, right before you do make yourself at home, last paragraph before that, again, you say, again, the overlooked were empowered by the community to be the overlookers. And that's summarizing a lot of the stuff you've taught in this chapter. But I, I think that, that's, you know, I grew up at, you know, my, in my 20s, I worked at Willow Creek Community Church, which I know this is a global gathering here, but back in the day, Willow Creek was one of the largest and most influential mega churches, you know, in North America. And every year I went to leadership summits and leadership conferences there. And like all the best practices of leadership, nobody ever talked about this. Nobody ever talked about that. This is, this is the best form of leadership when the overlooked are empowered by the community to be the overlookers. But I think, I think you're right. Like, I think that's what, I think that's what Luke is telling us in Acts 6, right? It's like, this is his, this is his litmus test of whether this thing is legit, right? Is like, do these disciples have the leadership prowess, the, 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 the level of Holy Spirit indwelling where they can continue to address these disparities where those who are overlooked are not just a little bit less overlooked, but where they actually are given the power to be the overlookers. I just thought that was super powerful. I won't get into first order and second order. I heard you guys talking about that again. There was one more. Oh, I, I, the, the, I guess on the last one, which, which chapter is this? Um, I don't know if it's, if there's a long section. It's in that, so I don't know how to, it's page 18 in my Kindle, but I don't know if that's going to help. Uh, you asked this question. You say, how do we move from being welcoming 
to creating true belonging in the body of in the body of Jesus. Belonging can't just be a spiritual and abstract truth. It must be lived out or we deny its reality for our lives. And you're kind of, you kind of wove in and out of, I mean, you're talking a lot about the sharing of power and the systems and structures that would be addressed, all of which is really critical. Um, but then that like interweaves in an interesting way with the, the concept of belonging, especially for those of us who are like trying to work together to create multi-ethnic spaces, economically diverse spaces. Um, uh, that question of belonging is just such a significant one. It feels related to, but distinct from the systems and structures kind of piece, you know, right. Um, right. Um, Brandon Green, I think you met him when you were with us. He's one of our leaders, but you know, we, you know, we've got, we meet monthly, all the different groups meet monthly for caucuses and the black caucus, they call it heart to heart. Um, he uses that language because we use that language a lot early days of River city of, you know, when Jesus says, uh, my house is to be, uh, you've made a, a den of, you've been a den of robbers, but my house is to be a house of prayer for all nations, right? The right, building on right. uh, the Isaiah prophecy. And right. what Brian often says to the black folks is he says, we don't just want this to be a house of prayer for all nations. We want it to be home, right? right. We, we, we need to have a level of belonging here. It's, it's your metaphors, right? Moving furniture, changing the heat, all those kind of things. We don't even just want this to be a house. We need it to be a home, which I think is belonging language, right? So, so that becomes, I think, one of the most critical questions in these kind of spaces is who feels at home and who doesn't, right? right? Who feels a sense of belonging, who doesn't? Again, that feels very related to power, but it also feels like something different. It feels like the identity stuff though that goes even deeper than that. So the way you kind of wove in together um, the power dynamics, uh, but also the identity questions of belonging, like who really feels like this is their home and what are the ways that demonstrate when somebody really feels like this is their home? So I thought there was some really powerful insight around that as well. Yeah, I mean, I think all of those things have to be framed, named, right, and grapple with all together. Because if you're just dealing with the structural stuff, um, you can churches can make new structures and policies in place, and not necessarily deal with who has true belonging, right? Yeah. And I think that um, so there could be an out in that. Or you could do power dynamic stuff, right? And but it doesn't necessarily reflect again this kind of deeper belonging in Christ that ought to be presence in the life of the community. Um, how does and I got Jennings in my mind, right? Um, this space created within uh, the life of Christ um, ought to be that space where belonging and identity um, and structures and power and all that stuff is being grappled with in really powerful ways. And so, mm-hmm. yeah. Yeah. And, and I, and hopefully, I mean, and I don't know how you feel as a pastor, maybe, I mean, I guess you, um, hopefully, I guess you're on this journey of doing, but, I, but I imagine, I mean, I tell the story of, you know, my first pastoral ministry, I was a fresh out of college and I'm a youth pastor and, you know, get myself into trouble with this uh, sermon. Um, and the church, like the lead pastor there, bless his heart, but he, he, you know, there's not space to talk about power dynamics in that church, right? Yeah. They want to have a multiracial space, but they don't want to talk about power. Um, and so, so I think too often, um, and, I, and I think I do hints in, in the chapter that, you know, at that time, the whole conversation, it was the racial reconciliation conversation, but it wasn't moving any yeah. deeper, right? Um, in terms of talking about power, couldn't, they weren't talking about white supremacy. They weren't talking about, you know, our, our belonging. There was an expectation um, that people of color are supposed to assimilate into that to some degree. Right. And so all of those things mm-hmm. were anim- animated and 
And the moment that I name that as this, you know, probably at that time, 22 year old, you know, I get my hand slapped basically. And you learn very quickly, you know, what is okay and what is not okay in those spaces. Um, And I think, you know, I always remember that not necessarily in just this negative sense of what I went through, but also just this realistic sense of some of the actual challenges that even churches that would, that probably would identify themselves as on the journey. And yet in some ways, the journey that they're on can sometimes be shallow, right? If we're not going deeper Mm -hmm. and naming these forces at work that shape and animate the life of a congregation. Right. Um, I'm curious about for you, what, what kind of, um, communal practices or leadership structures um, have you seen, like have, has, has your community been working on that may be helpful for other congregations to consider? What, 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 what has that process kind of looked like for you? Um, so our governance, we have an elder board that is um, volunteers and then a staff team um, and the, together, all, you know, kind of big decisions are made through those two. So the groups work closely together. Um, some of the axioms that we use a lot or kind of practices, I guess maybe three jump out to me. Um, one would be um, there, there's just kind of a constant question. Like, do you feel like you're able to come as your full self, the bottom line? So um, try to always be uh, have open dialogue if, or even just call it out. Like if it feels like, you know, cause we're, we're pretty close knit. There's 10 of us all together. So we know each other really well. The elders change um, from time to time. Um, but if somebody feels like they're shrinking back or like not speaking up, you know, that's, that'll be one of the things to ask, like, uh, you know, what's happening right now that's preventing you from coming from your full self. And of course, culture is not the only thing, but there's just different ways in which power dynamics happen that you're not even aware of that, you know, somebody feels minimized or they kind of shrink within that. Um, so we really work hard to make sure that everybody feels like they can come as their full selves. Um, a second one would be, um, it, it, I, mean, I think this probably should be important in homogenous settings too. So just feels so much more important um, in cross-cultural settings. Um, but we've just got really a, a high view of conflict and the importance of dealing with conflict in a healthy way. So yeah. one of the axioms we use is we call it short, keeping short accounts. Um, so one of the things we actually say is if you bring something up that's like hurting you or that's a problem you've had and it's like you've been actually sitting with it for a while, um, like you actually lose a lot of credibility because you actually dishonor the community every moment up until then because you let it build for so long. And so it's just an expectation that, um, you know, when something felt off, when your feelings got hurt, when you felt like you weren't hurt, when one of us is showing up in a way that there will just be a follow-up conversation one-on-one with folks um, so that these things fester and grow. Um, so you know, we, we just expect it to be normative that small conflicts are very consistent part of life in the community with the hopes that not that it couldn't become big if it's big, you know, but which shouldn't become big because somebody sat up for a while. That's the thing. So we talk about keeping short accounts. Then the third one, the trickiest one of all is we're committed to consensus decision making. Um, and I think you addressed this, um, was that in the, when you were contrasting kind of a singular leadership style? Yeah. Um, oh, is that the next one? I think I think I'm just remembering. Didn't you talk about? I might how talk about it a little bit a in this of, chapter. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because I, I think uh, you talk about how. I, oh, yeah, yeah, I, I you were talking about your Anabaptist yeah. tradition and yeah, your yeah, black yeah, church yeah, tradition. Yeah, 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 one yeah. being more and like, I, yeah, 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 yeah. So when you were talking about the, uh, you actually defined it well. Um, it, 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 the, the consensus. I mean, everybody agrees, but you try to moving towards having this kind of group discernment. You know. Um, I don't know how to do that in a congregation. That's amazing to the Anabaptist tradition, but we value that at least in the leadership team. We, like anything that feels like a significant decision, we won't move on it until everybody agrees. 
um, that is the right thing. And so sometimes that actually means everybody does agree. Sometimes that means somebody has to defer. We use the language of deferring. So by deferring, we're really clear, we're really careful to delineate the word deferring. Like if, if it feels like a moral conviction, we don't ever want you to defer, right? We would never want you to go against something that you feel like God was directly revealing or is moral. If it's just like, I wouldn't do it that way, but the fact that eight or nine would, I can do like that, you know, that, that will happen. But we don't ma- ever make any major decision. I mean, even major, I'm like, like anything that feels significant for life of the body at all. Um, we won't move on it without consensus um, decision-making on it. So that feels like an important way. And, you know, within our team, we've got all the different parts of our body represented. So hope we're hoping that we're hearing most of what would affect the congregation on these. And so the consensus decision-making is also a huge part of our kind of culture within the church. Yeah. I mean, I, and I do, so I do talk about in this chapter, but I talk about it some more in the next chapter as well. Um, but yeah, I do think, um, I mean, reimagining leadership, I think, is really important, especially um, in contexts where if you don't name and think about these practices intentionally, white supremacy will take, right, by default, right. it will be operative and it will kind right. of shape life. And so I think yeah, it's so critical. And um, despite the tendency, especially in many white dominant culture churches and others that assimilate and, and practice that, um, you know, efficiency isn't always <laughs> the best option, right? For hearing different right. voices, for grappling with conflict, for any of those things that, right. um, that there are better practices and disciplines for the life of the church that are much healthier and yeah. can affirm people's, everyone can bring them f- their full selves, their cultures, their identities um, into that yeah. space and, and give good voice to that. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, thank you, Daniel. I really appreciate um, you spending some time hanging out with us. Um, grateful. Hopefully at some point I can stop in at River City. I don't know when I'll be in Chicago next. Probably is not going to be for a very long time, the way things are looking right now. But if I ever do, I uh, would love to stop in again and visit y'all. Um, you all. Always grateful for my time with you. Thanks. Thanks. Grateful for this book. Really love it. If you want to be part of this growing global community, you can find more details on our Inverse Patreon page. We are seeking to practice a Jubilee economics to make these experiences accessible to everyone, wherever you're found, be it in remote communities in the Kimberley or a township in Cape Town or downtown Berlin or on the south side of Chicago or the suburbs of Sydney. We want to make this accessible for you. So let's work to do that together.